the 87th Texas Ledge. I'm your co-host, Brie from the Tea with Brie. My show is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation, where each week I sit down with a different guest to have those conversations. As always, for this beautiful collaborative podcast, I'm joined by my dear close personal friend, Kelsey Hitchingham from the Engaging Austin podcast. Hi, Brie. Hi, Catherine. It's nice to see you guys. It's so nice to see you too. Yes, as Kelsey says, we are joined by ugh, the things I can say about Catherine Gonzalez. I'm going to read <laughs> Catherine's bio, but I want to want to first start with saying the honor and privilege is mine today to see Catherine here with us via Zoom because COVID. Catherine Gonzalez, the Lone Star Diva, is a transgender speaker, educator, and advocate for the LGBTQIA plus community. Catherine is the co-author of Trans Plus, Love, Sex, Romance, and Being You, a growing up guide for trans and non-binary youth, and the operations and program director at Out Youth, an Austin-based nonprofit that has served LGBTQIA plus youth for 30 years. Catherine has worked in the nonprofit sector, specifically youth advocacy and organizing for 15 years. She has facilitated statewide youth lobby days, organized statewide conferences on youth leadership and empowerment, and created the Queer Youth Media Project during her time at the Austin Gay and Lesbian International Film Festival. In 2017, Catherine founded the Central Texas Transgender Health Coalition, which supports the health and well-being of the transgender and gender non-binary community. She also serves as the vice chair of the City of Austin's LGBTQ Quality of Life Commission, which advises the Austin City Council on issues relating to the quality of life of queer people in the city of Austin. Catherine's research into the evolutionary importance of storytelling in our everyday lives heavily influences her work and always seeks new ways for youth to share their stories with the world. Well, that's just a tidbit. That's the tip of the iceberg about Catherine Gonzalez. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for being willing to educate us about the Texas Ledge. I feel like every two years, I feel like you are at the helm of the Texas Ledge in regards to queer life and queer experiences and defending queer folks here in Texas. So again, I'm just super excited. Pleasure to be here and to see you again, my friend. It's been too long. It's so far too long. Catherine and I used to work together and I just want to point out that Catherine is the best person to work with from the side eyes to the laughs, to the professionalism, to just being able to vent. So everyone should have a Catherine in their life. You can't have this one because she's mine, but <laughs> hope you find your Catherine. One day. That is the greatest type of any guest. So <laughs> I'm very excited to have this conversation. <laughs> a, a, a true joy. But no, I mean, I know Warren was on last week and we love Warren, but Warren is not my Catherine. That's all I'm going to say. Any hoodles. Can you talk to us about your experience with the Texas Ledge? Like I said, I feel like you, in the time that I've known you, you've done a lot of work with either educating folks or telling or teaching them how to be more involved or you know, like your bio said, I'm helping our youth get involved with, with politics. So let's start with that. Yes. So I really first got involved with the Texas ledge back in college in 2005 was participating in some lobby days organized that youth lobby day that's mentioned there. That was the same year that the ledge passed its amendment to the Texas Constitution defining marriage as between one man and one woman. And then every two years from there, I end up at the Capitol trying to defend somebody because 
really what it always seems to boil down to for me is we have representatives who have been elected that do not seek to do their job, which is to represent absolutely everyone in their district. And that's actually what we were talking about before we started today, Bree, this thought of running for office, which I've entertained a bunch of times. I would want to enter that in a way where I felt competent and capable of making sure that everyone's needs were met. Not everyone's wants, because that's not possible. As one of my favorite memes says, I can't make everyone happy. I'm not tacos. <laughs> so what I have observed over the last 15 years are representatives who use the LGBTQIA plus community as a scapegoat as that thing to stoke fear in their base in order to get reelected. And I think it's quite shameful that in order to run and win office, people have to rely on the fear of the other. And that's been happening forever. That also needs to be acknowledged. What I found very interesting was when the Supreme Court in the summer of 2015 declared through its ruling that same-sex couples had the right to marry, the very next legislative session, we no longer were talking about marriage, we were talking about trans people. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't a mistake. Trans people, and eventually that session in 2017, trans kids in particular, were under attack. And I think the worst part of all of that experience, especially 2017, what really showed the true colors of the people involved, especially Senator Lois Kolkhorst, who wrote the bill, they didn't know anything about us. I think it was very telling that we had trans men show up to testify. Say, look, you, you don't want me in the women's restroom. And they're like, no, we don't want you in the women's restroom because you don't look anything like a woman. And they're like, exactly. I'm a trans man. And they're like, yeah, we know. You need to start looking more like a woman if you want to be accepted as a woman. Like no concept at all of even the existence of trans men. And then of course it always gets boiled down to bathrooms. Well, and when Lois realized that there was no way to enforce the law in public, they changed the bill and said, well, we will enforce this ban on trans people using a bathroom that does not conform to the sex that they were assigned at birth in places of, in public places, in, in government places, basically. Well, what's the biggest slice of that pie? Public schools. So they lost that battle too. They tried again in 2019 and failed. I think a lot of that has to do with changing attitude in the public. I think it also has a little something to do with Texas. Texas is its own beast, as Brie can especially attest to. We don't like being told what to do here. And that often extends to this belief that we shouldn't be telling others what to do, especially when it boils down to something as basic as having to use the restroom. Now what we are preparing for in this legislative session is continued attacks on trans youth, but now more focused on banning them from participating in team sports. One particular piece of legislation that I apologize, I was not able to read into yet. This, it wasn't Friday and it was not happy hour yet because I think I'm gonna need a drink to read this one. But the basis of the bill that I heard tell of this week was it would allow parents to challenge 
the validity of another child's participation on a sports team, which includes but is not limited to the child who is being accused of not having the right genitals being subjected to a genital examination by a doctor. Oh no. So this is bad enough from a trans kid perspective, right? But what happens when the two kids on the football team have a spat over the girlfriend and accuses one another or on the cheerleading team? There is no end. Beyond that, even more disgusting is the legislature's attempt to classify as abuse the affirmation of a child's gender, who they know themselves to be by doctors and therapists, making it legal for therapists and doctors who say, we believe you when you tell us who you are to be reported and investigated and prosecuted for child abuse and neglect. Now, do any of these bills have any chance of going anywhere? In a regular year, I would say no. I mean, we've got a pretty good track record of defeating this stuff because, you know, like I told Lois Colcarst in 2017, girl, you keep sitting up there clutching at them damn pearls telling us to think of the children and what do you think I'm doing here? I'm thinking of my children, all of these trans kids across Texas who deserve just as much protection, probably more because of what they have to face. The complicating factor is we're in the middle of a pandemic. And last I checked, the legislature still has not sorted out in, in, in its entirety, how the public is to weigh in. One of the most powerful pieces of power, most influential pieces of power that the community has is going and testifying. Back in 2017, I think I testified at 2.30 in the morning. Last person testified at near six in the morning. They promised us that they were not going to take a vote that they were gonna go home, sleep on it, vote a couple days later. No, they took a vote right after. They also don't like being called bigots. That's a whole other thing you can get into. I can't imagine why. But it does concern me that they may try to squeeze through some of this legislation and limit public participation because of the very real threat of the pandemic, which is quite convenient, don't you think? Because these are the same people that say we don't need to wear masks because COVID is a hoax. Mm -hmm. But also it's not a hoax because it is very real and dangerous and you can't come and talk to us. Because mm -hmm. we don't want to see your trans faces. We don't want your trans bodies. We don't want your trans stories dirtying our chambers. Which is it, Lois? Which is it? Uh, Brie might also remember from that time that I was teasing Lois Kokorst on Twitter mercilessly <laughs> that session. It was, it was a true joy. Y'all <laughs> should go back and, and look at those tweets, honestly. Um, so that's everything in a nutshell. The, the piece that I want to tie it all back to, though, is that the critical piece of the work ahead for us and in some ways, I think it might even play to our benefit living in this new digital world, is that we do have new ways to have our youth tell their stories, to speak their truth. Because as we keep trying to teach our kids about youth, the prevailing narrative, at least in America, is that you don't have any power here until you're 18 and you can vote, then you have all the power you want. But before that, shut up, nobody wants to hear from you. Well, that's not true. <laughs> I've been doing this for 15 years. I know what happens when a youth, a young adult, a child walks up to a microphone in a hearing at a school board meeting, city council, and speaks their truth. Mm -hmm. It gets almost painfully quiet 
because everyone wants to know what they have to say. So you better believe that part of the legislative process, the legislative strategy for this session will be getting youth to tell their stories. It has to be. It's the only thing that's ever changed anything. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things that you and I talked about before, Catherine, is folks who want to testify or folks who start getting really involved in politics and and get super nervous, either talking in public or calling the offices. And one of the things you said, because you know me, my East Coast, I'll call anyone, talk to anyone about anything and also call you out. But the one thing that you pointed out was like that reminder to yourself when you were on these calls, like these people work for us, right? Like we, they have to represent us. If they don't do the job properly, we can vote them out. And so I think that that's a great thing that you've been teaching the youth too, of like, you share your story, it is your story. No one can tell you that it's not. No one can tell you that it is wrong. No one can try to change your own narrative. And I think that's such an empowering thing, especially for youth who live in Texas, who who feel as though the state doesn't protect them. And, and like we said, Texas is its own wild bronco. I don't know what that simile is, but here we are, metaphor. But it, it's, it's so interesting how there is this mentality of like Texas is basically its own country that just so happens to be within the United States. Like we make so many laws that are old and outdated and, and, troublesome for folks who aren't cis and wealthy and white and male and and you know having folks like you and a bunch of other activists and people who are super involved teach that next generation of like you have to change this place that is representative of you and the folks you wanted to protect yeah it's the it, weird to do a call to action like near the beginning of the podcast but this is my call to action to everyone given what is going on and what continues to happen look am i happy that there is a biden presidency yes do i think he and harris are perfect no do i already enjoy that people are dragging the press secretary on twitter because she is up there defending without question the almost the, the, the ridiculous amount of money that Janet Yellen has made from speaking fees. Yes, I love to watch all of it. I love all of it. It's my Super Bowl. I don't watch anything with the ball that gets thrown around. I watch MSNBC. <laughs> but here is the call to action. And Bree is correct. And I, I wish I remember who taught me this. But it was very early on. This whole notion of these, these people work for you. They, they may sit up on a dais they may have fancy nameplates. They may have fancy letterhead with seals on them, but they work for you. So what I have taken to do, and I encourage everyone listening to this podcast to stop right now and look up absolutely everyone that works for you from the president all the way down to local school board, dog catcher, I don't know where you live. And you put all of their contact information in your phone and you put all of those contacts in a group called people who work for me. So that way, when stuff is happening, like, I don't know, an attempted coup, I don't have to go on the internet and look up the phone number for Ted Cruz's office. It's already in my phone. Heck, I can even ask Siri to call him right now. <laughs> And that is just a simple reminder that has really reframed the way that I do my work. Not a sense of entitlement, because that doesn't work. Yes, these people work for me, even when they are doing a bad job and I dislike them to the very core of my soul, I also know that yelling at them is not gonna change anything. Instead, I ask questions, which a therapist taught me at one point. The whole, what makes you say that? and just let them talk until they hear their own racism, homophobia, transphobia, and then they can't work out of it. And that's really hilarious to watch. But there is that fear and I want to acknowledge that it is real. We weren't taught in school how to advocate for ourselves. Heck, most people don't understand. We were having a problem with the electoral college. People didn't know how to math. <laughs> It's like, it was fine the last time, but this time now the electoral, the math doesn't work. Mm -hmm. No, it's math. So it's another piece of frustration 
that we do have with the current system in the queer community is that we spend so much time trying to defend ourselves from attack that it makes it really hard to advocate for things that we actually want, mm -hmm. which is really what most people want. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Meaning good education, good jobs, good health care. Safety. But Housing. All of the things that we would want, but people have a finite amount of energy and it is draining. Absolutely draining. And I'm thankful that the legislature only meets every two years. We could <laughs> live in a state where they meet every year or they're just kind of constantly in session. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. I send all of my love, support, and uh, good energy to the folks out there in states where that is the reality. It's, I don't know that I would have the gumption for it. I think it's also interesting, too, of like you were saying before, the the way that trans folks have now become the scapegoat. Like, and I don't know why that quote of like, first it came for me, like that whole like thing, because it's like first it came for Black people. And then Trump this year, well, just sorry, during his presidency came for Mexicans and Muslims and trans folks. And we see how Texas used to be for gay men and then lesbians. And now it's, you know, trans folk. And it's, it's, it's always the, again, the, the farther you are away from whiteness or cisness or wealth, the more that everything that's meant to protect you is on the chopping block. And I think it's, again, just, just watching how inaccessible Testi like testimony is or speaking up for yourself like you're saying you you testified at like 2 30 in the morning the way that the system is set up is not set up so that folks can actually speak for themselves and then we had people in office who don't give a rat's ass about us but they want to get the support of their wealthy supporters and their base so of course they're going to keep doing things that are detrimental to the actual folks who need that representation and so like like we were saying before we got on of like while yes, I would love to run for office in Texas, I I do not think I'd ever get elected because of how progressive in I am and and how I legitimately believe that all people should have the rights to all the things that they want. But I know that Texas does not believe that, right? Like the whole state of Texas will not agree with what I say. So it's I don't know, just things like that that it just shows how how screwed the system is. This is the point where I like to bring Stacey Abrams into the conversation that I so rarely find myself at a loss for words, which we can attest to. It I can. has really informed the way that I approach my work. Actually, also President Obama, the way that his campaign was funded in micro donations and accessing the millennial donor base, which is critical for a nonprofit in today's age. But looking at Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor, had it stolen from her. And then what did she do? She organized. Instead of sitting there and crying and saying, well, I'm just gonna sit here and mull and then run again. Just, no, I know what caused this. And part of it is that people don't have enough power here mm -hmm. because the system has been built against them. And if we just overwhelm it enough with the power of the people and reminding them of what their vote means, we can do it. It was, interest it was interesting how they said like all this voter fraud and it's like, no, this system that was in place did what it was supposed to do, right? Like the way that voter registration was before, it was like it made it so that people of color, low-income folks in um, folks who were disenfranchised couldn't get registered. And like you're saying, Stacey was like, I'm going to fix this <laughs> so that we can flip Georgia and inadvertently end up flipping the rest of the country. And, you know, I also think of Cori Bush, who is the congresswoman out of Missouri. She ran three times. She just won. And, and being able to, I had a conversation with her on the phone last year for this other organization I was working for, but being able to, to talk with her about like why she's running and, you know, the system wasn't designed for everyone. And she saw that she had, she wanted to see herself represented and she knows that she would, she was able to 
to do that for folks and now to see her in office and the stuff she's been saying and the things she's been able to do. I mean, she's only been there, what, two months and, and watching her testify and the things she's been saying of like, this country is not for us and I'm here to make sure that it is. And like you're saying that the folks who survived the insurrection and the coup and watching those Congress people be like this, we almost lost our lives because this system has completely been, I don't know how else to say, but like deranged by the past president who said that the electoral college was unfair, but it was fair when he won. And these states where Republicans won were fine, but the states where the Republicans lost was not fine. We're like, we're not fine. But also the election yeah. was rigged, but only the presidential race on the same ticket. That, right. Yeah. yeah. Right. All the Republicans who won their races were legitimate. Won. But, mm-hmm. right, the Democrats. Yeah. The mental gymnastics, you guys. Mm-hmm. I'd, if I were judging it like the Olympics, tens across the board stuck <laughs> that landing. Sort of. Not really considering how it all sorted out. Truly. The the thing that I am noticing and why Stacey Abrams' story in particular is so inspiring to me is that it serves as this shining example of what happens when you flip the script. Mm -hmm. And I just love to tell this story partly what inspired the work that I've done with the city of Austin's Quality of Life Commission for the queer community. Because our job is to advise city council to make recommendations Mm -hmm. about things that will make the quality of life of queer people in Austin, Texas better. Mm -hmm. And I do not fault them for the way that this worked the first few years. But we would make a recommendation and the response would be, this is great, but you know, how many people will this impact? Like, what's the proof that this is actually an issue besides anecdotal evidence? Like, what do the numbers say? So we would go back and say, well, we have requested the funding to do a quality of life survey, which is currently going on. Mm -hmm. Well, I finally got to the point where I was like, you know, I gotta flip the script on this. So every time they would ask how many people in Austin are queer. How many people will this affect if we take action on it, if we make this part of ordinance? So I just started saying what the population number of Austin was. (laughs) They're like, you can't surely be telling us that you think that everyone in Austin is queer. And I was like, well, Show me the data otherwise. Prove it. (laughs) We're not collecting the data across the board. And in some cases, rightfully so. I'm not saying that when you sign up for a library card, you need to tell us your entire sexual history. Mm -hmm. But would it be nice to know how many queer people access the library and its many systems and services? I think so. Do I think it should be required? But to not ask at all feels a little bit like erasure. Okay. And it helped us flip our entire thinking. Because I do want to admit, we live in Austin, Texas, which holds itself up as this progressive bastion of truth and amazingness and being an accepting place. And in some ways, that is true. Uh, but it is certainly not perfect. And the reminder to ourselves in our work that you know, not everyone in Austin is queer, surely we know that. But we also know that there are queer people in Austin that do not feel safe here, that for whatever reason cannot come out. And refocusing our work on making sure that their quality of life is just as good both before coming out and after, if they choose to, if it is safe to, that that's important too. That it's not just important for those of us who have the privilege to be loud and proud, to have access to systems and services that improve our quality of life. So 
I guess the second call to action, figure out where in your life you can flip scripts. Ask the question in an entirely different way. Because I will admit, I was trying to be sassy with the city council. I don't deny that. But as soon as those words left my lips the first time, I was like, wait a second. They've been asking us to prove this thing which is improvable. And now we've done the same. Which then takes us to equity. And all the ways that equity starts to bleed into all of the work that is left to do. Now over the summer, no beginning, well, I guess it was about summertime back then. You know, Out Youth had to close March 13th, much like everyone else, Friday the 13th of March. It's gonna be like, remember, remember the 5th of November. Well, we decided to close for in-person services for the safety and health of every member of the Out Youth family. Went entirely online in less than 48 hours. And one of the things that I am so proud to have launched given my interest in story was story time with me, where I would read for an hour every night as bedtime story and look at two men. And my favorite book that we read was Pet by Akwike Emezi. It's about this deaf, black, trans girl in some point in the near future who helps protect someone very close to her with the help of a monster called Pet. But what struck me is in that very first chapter to set the scene of where we were in the future, she talks about a reckoning. This time before she was born, when the people rose up, and finally started to reckon with all of the things that they had not been able to reckon with before. To root out evil at every level because it was not sustainable anymore. And I will admit, I often wonder if we are in that reckoning, if there wasn't something in that book that foretold what we're going through Admittedly, I also remember reading The Handmaid's Tale in high school, where the whole reason that we ended up in The Handmaid's Tale is that people stormed the Capitol and executed everyone. So, you know, lots of literal parallels going on there that are very concerning, but I'm just going to stick with Pet. Which is that reminder that there's so much work left to do. It will never be done. I have follow-up questions that I'd like to ask, but I'm just captivated by the way you're able to weave these stories into, into this interview. And thank you very much for making this so accessible, you know, to, to, especially when we're talking about something like the ledge and to bring it to an individual level, you know, I, I the, the image that comes to mind when we're talking about these bills and, and this reckoning in some way is, is like whack-a-mole, right? I mean, we, we squash it over here, it grow, you know, we, we grow stronger over here. We have numbers, we have, you know, we have, you know, more widespread acceptance and understanding and education, but I'm thinking of these conservative think tanks that take these bills and tweak them the same bill and basically brings them to every state legislature to see where it's going to stick. And, you know, <laughs> very much in the vein of like, you can't tell it, you know, don't mess with Texas and don't bring it in. There are still those Texas conservatives who open, who just blow open the doors and let this, this filth, these just absolutely immoral bills come to the floor and see whether or not Texas is where it's going to happen. Right. Holy shit. Let's hold up. We need to address something that has always been in the room and nobody's ever said before. Yes, it's vile, it is evil, it is wrong, but at the base of all of it, it's lazy. For a party that has told marginalized people for generations that they just need to work harder, they need to pull themselves up by bootstraps, even though most of us didn't have boots to begin with, to just 
copy somebody else's work? Right. All for small government? I do give them this. They are very capable of talking out both sides of their mouth. Mm -hmm. And I, that is my, one of my sincerest fears is that one day someone will accuse me of the same. Like, I know that a lot of stuff just kind of spills out sometimes. It might contradict itself from time to time, but I do hope that I will at least be consistent over time. But back to the COVID thing we were talking about before. Like, what is, is it a public health disaster and a risk or is it a hoax? Like, which is it? Because would I be willing to mask up, wear a hazmat suit, mm -hmm. go testify that yes, I would. Because mm -hmm. I think it's that important. Will they let us? Probably not. Because it's a hoax, but it's not a hoax. It is the worst kind of gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And it's lazy. Right. And it's stupid. I feel like stupid stupid gaslighting is the worst kind of gaslighting where they're just not even pretending it. Not anymore. even good at it. Right. Not that I advocate for good gaslighting. That's terrible. <laughs> I feel like that's an album title for someone. <laughs> yeah, instead of focusing on things that we really need. I'm gonna go clout chase by demonizing trans kids, kids in general, who in the state of Texas are considered property of their parents until they turn 18. Yeah, everyone always makes that face. I know there's lawyers that would argue with me. My children do have some rights, but I've been doing this work long enough to know that there's a certain way that Texas treats its children. And I just happen to think that they deserve better. And would love to fight for that, but instead we have to talk about bathrooms every two years. Mm -hmm. Well, and when we were talking to Warren last week, he was he brought up the fact that there's still there's a there's an array of anti-abortion bills this year, and my thought is still really like we're still just going to keep like it's it's like the you know that Congress continuing to vote to repeal Obamacare. Like it's not gonna happen, but it's gonna bring it clout and it's going to take this, you know, suck the air out of some other thing that's actually important that we should be focusing on. But instead it's just, I'm gonna beat this same drum over and over again for, you know, for my constituents who just wanna see this and nothing else happen. Cause that's the only thing that matters. Mm -hmm. It's like abortion, immigration and then LGBTQA folks. Like it's just never, the end of never ending triangle. It's like, you just keep going back and forth forever. And it's childish. Mm -hmm. I, I have to admit, Kelsey, as you were describing this going back again and again, it's like a weird parallel to draw. So follow me on this one. There's an episode of Family Guy where Stewie walks into Lois and Peter's bedroom and does the whole mom, mom, mm -hmm. mom, mother, mm -hmm. mother. Mother, just like, <laughs> gonna ask again and again and again and again and again. And ultimately we know that the strategy is we're gonna try and get something through, which we know is gonna be challenged in the courts, which then can go up to the Supreme Court. Like that's the other thing that the strategy is so transparent, mm -hmm. but I also need to own my privilege in that. Like, I got a good education. And I'm white and I got a good job that allows me to focus on this thing that I'm passionate about. I get to, I got to go to the, I live in Austin. It didn't require me traveling across the state seven hours and find a place to stay and then stay up all night to testify. I have a different amount of access. Mm -hmm. Which is why I try to do with it what I can. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Catherine, because, you know, Bree and I have been talking since we started talking about cr uh, creating this show 
how every year the ledge comes up and every year we think, you know, this will be the year that we get a handle on it and we figure out the resources and we're able to sort of, you know, understand the information that's coming out of it. But I, I mean, I admit, I, I consider myself to be pretty politically plugged in and I think I take my proximity to the Capitol for granted in a lot of ways. You know, I assume that this information is going to, I'm going to get it through osmosis. It's going to be on KUT or someone's going to tweet about it, or it's going to be on social media or the circle that I run in, someone's going to know what's going on. But I don't, I think I've really taken that privilege for granted and not been proactive about knowing what's going on at the Capitol other than the big headlines, right? And so understanding the insidiousness of what happens, you know, with with these ploys and this, you know, this gaslighting and talking at, with, and talking out of both sides of your neck and all of these things, I think that, you know, we know at a certain level that politicians are always going to be that way, you know, and, and the state house is always going to be rife with corruption, but digging into it and talking about the ugliness of the truth of the state capital in Texas is really, I think it can be, it can be very tedious and exhausting for somebody who's not that involved. And so knowing your level of involvement <clears throat> for the last 15 years and, and the constant fight for, you know, for identity and for acceptance and just to, to be able to be, <laughs> to be who you are has got to be absolutely exhausting. Yes. And it's a waste of my time. Mm -hmm. It's a waste of everyone's time and money. And they don't care, which is one of the saddest things of all. I do want to push back on one thing you said, Kelsey, because I agree to an extent. The state house will always be rife with corruption until it isn't. Mm -hmm. And for it to not be requires us to make very difficult decisions to organize in a different way because obviously it's not working. What we're doing right now isn't working. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are much smarter people than me that think all day long and get paid to think all day long about how we can do this differently. And they've been doing good work and we haven't found the secret sauce yet. But I think that if, if people, and I appreciate that, but I, if people take your second call to action, right, flip the script, if everybody starts thinking about this differently, because, you know, like Bree said, we are so, we're so ingrained in understanding that the power structure is very, it's, it's very difficult to access. But if we start flipping the script on how we consider that those points of access to how we consider them, maybe this collective movement will change that. That is the hope. I think what I was reacting to is I don't know that I can sleep at night if I have to assume that it's always going to be corrupt. <laughs> it already feels that way. I feel that's the, I think that's been the prevailing conversation for everybody, especially with the pandemic is how do we, how do we, how do we siphon some of the terrible news off just so that we can live, you know? What are we we're dealing with that with our kids right now? Yeah. This week was rough, you guys. And thankfully, I, I used some of my therapy session on Tuesday to talk about it. My therapist brought to my attention that part of what she was seeing in her client base was very similar that in some ways, it's, it's like getting out of an abusive relationship. For four years, it was just nothing but a constant assault mm -hmm. every day, multiple times a day for four years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So much so that we could not really grieve in the moment. And now that it is over, there's a quiet and that quiet is going to be filled with grief. Yeah. Even better though, and because I, I acknowledge that part of it in myself, but I still have this piece I couldn't figure out. And I think it's key to understand one of the kids on Tuesday night, as I was talking this through with them about why I thought things had been so weird, said like, yeah, I, I can understand that. But for me, I find myself getting really anxious by just the overabundance of good news like it's too much to take in. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And perhaps those pathways have degraded a little bit in order to be able to take in all of that at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I want to give voice and space for that too, that we're going into a legislative session, which is going to be weird anyway, after four years of a nightmare at a time when we are seeing lots of great stuff coming out of the White House, which may make people think that everything is fine. Mm-hmm. So it is an encouragement to get as involved as you can to find the way to share your voice. And what I encourage folks to do is really think about where you are screaming. Because it's, it's fine to scream into your pillow. Mm-hmm. It's fine to hike to the top of Mount Benel and scream at the top of your lungs. It's fine to scream at family, racist family, in a respectful, non-abusive way. And it's fine to scream on social media. I just invite people to think of how you can take some of that energy and direct it in a way to the people that work for you. Again, not saying call up these offices and scream at them over the phone, that doesn't accomplish anything. Except maybe gets your phone number blocked. Lead by example. One of the most powerful things I've seen done with social media in social change movements is people being the example for others, recording themselves on a TikTok, calling up their representative on speaker. Mm just as an example of what it's like, because mm-hmm. that can be so overwhelming. I'm gonna call, who's gonna answer? Is Ted Cruz gonna answer? I don't know that I wanna to talk to Ted Cruz. I can assure you, Ted Cruz doesn't answer his own phone. No. None of them do. No. Even Austin City Council, you can't call Austin City Council and get a council member on the phone right away. And that's not a dig, that's just the reality. There, there are gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. So thinking through what you wanna say, how you wanna say it, and to remind them in a way. And sometimes I will admit, I do make those calls. So when I have nothing better to say, I may call my representative's offices just to give my name and my zip code and to tell them to pass a message along to the representative or the senator that just a reminder that they work for me. And then I hang up. I don't know if any of those have ever made it. I've never gotten a form email back <laughs> like I do for everything else, but you have to take your power where you can get it and use your story in the best way possible in order to make the world a better place for everyone else. A little bit at a time. I, I phrased it to the youth on Tuesday as a simple mathematical problem. You can do nothing in the world and everything remains neutral. You have no impact. But one of you said earlier that, you know, it doesn't matter how much good you do, it will never be enough. He said, if you could put in, if you had the power right now where you sit to put one more atom of goodness in the world, would you? Or would you throw it away? Of course I'd put it in the world. I know you would because you're a good person. It's nothing that any one of us can do on our own. It's too big. There's 7 billion of us on this planet. We're gonna run into each other. We're gonna be mad at each other. We're not always going to agree but I do think it boils down to, we have to figure out eventually what our core values are. What are the things that we are not going to argue about that we can't argue about because we hold them to be true. We used to think it was that the world was round. Took a couple steps back there. Apparently now it's flat which I disagree with because of that age old joke. If the earth was flat, the cats would have pushed everything off the edge by now. (laughs) The sky is blue. Water is wet. 
And it's the key part of negotiation, coming to an initial understanding of what can we agree are the parameters. Does gravity exist? And it may have to be that simple and painful. Can you imagine having to sit in a room with other people to try and come to an agreement about a core set of human values and have to start with, can we agree that the sky is blue? No. So what if they're colorblind? How do we accommodate for that? Where does accessibility come in and equity? And you see the problem. It's not easy, but it is work worth doing. Well, Catherine, we are approaching the end of our hour. This has been a great conversation. I could listen to you talk all day, honestly. Welcome to my life when I worked with Catherine. I would just stare and watch her talk all day. So, But no, again, thank you so very much. This is, this is what we needed. I think I thank you for making all the stuff that you do accessible and, and encouraging folks to get involved, even when they're nervous or scared or feel like they don't have a voice. Then that gentle reminder of we all do. We all have something to say and all have something to share. Yes, you are not responsible for knowing everything all the time. To Kelsey's point, the legislative session is overwhelming. They'll file thousands of bills. There's no way to keep up with all of them. The best thing to do is curate your own network of influence and information so that you can keep up with the things that you are most passionate about. Because let me tell you, you could read all the bills about Texas oil and gas industry regulation. Mm -hmm. I don't find that particularly compelling. <laughs> health and human services stuff, mental health, youth, education, that's all interesting to me. I'll keep up with those. And I will trust that people who are very passionate about Texas oil and gas industry policy will do their good work too. I can't do it all, but I will not do, I will not shy away from the work that I can do. And I hope everyone else will too, as much as you can every day. I feel like that's a good place to end. Catherine, again, thank you so much. Is there, do you have any social media or any, any accounts that you would like to plug so that people can reach out to you if they have questions? I am on all of the things <laughs> at the Lone Star Diva. Great. I'd like to connect to anyone that would like to talk more or get advice about how they can get involved. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. We really thank appreciate you both it. For well, we'll catch y'all on the next one. I am Brie. That was Kelsey. <laughs> we'll work on our outro. We're, yeah, intro we got done. Outro, questionable. But thanks y'all for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.